Well, King David, arguably one of the most successful leaders in the history of the world, certainly in biblical history, once wrote these now famous words that we just saw on the screen. He said, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I send to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Psalm 139, seven through 12. In other words, no matter where you go, no matter what happens to you, no matter what this world may ever do to you, if you're a child of God, then he is always, always, always with you. The reason that passage of scripture gives us so much comfort is not because life is always good, right? If life was always good, then we wouldn't need that passage of scripture, no. The reason those verses are so meaningful to us is because sometimes life is anything but good. In fact, I'm sure everyone here knows all too well that suffering in one form or another is an inevitable part of living. The truth is there's no version of life on this planet that does not involve some form of suffering at points along the way. And although we often have no control over whether or not we experience suffering, we always have control over how we respond to that suffering. And I'll just tell you, I believe the single greatest determining factor in how we respond to suffering is the degree to which we understand the purpose of that suffering to begin with. Okay, there, there are uh, countless studies that show the correlation between a worker's productivity and the degree to which they feel a sense of purpose in that work. In other words, the more purpose a worker is able to identify in his work, the more productive he or she will be in that work. In fact, uh, the Harvard Business Review reported in 2018 that nine out of 10 people are willing to earn less money to do more meaningful work. It's been proven time and again that people are far more likely to work productively and purposefully when they understand what it is they're working for, right? So if you uh, tell your child to do something just because I said so, well, that child may do what you've told him or her to do simply out of obedience, which is good. But look, when you take the time to explain the reason that work is important, Okay, they, they still may not like it, but when they understand why it matters, they will do what you've told them to do with a sense of purpose. And you understand it's the exact same thing with suffering. Because suffering is something we have to work through. And yet, if you cannot see the purpose in that suffering to begin with, then you're far more likely to look for ways to simply escape it than you are to look for ways to work through it. And the problem with that is suffering is meant to be something we work through. That's why God allows it in our lives, not simply to escape it, but to learn from it and to grow in it in order to accomplish his will as we work through it. But you're not likely to do any of that if you don't recognize the purpose of that suffering to begin with. Uh, pastor and author Paul Chappelle once wrote, often we endure trials seeking God's deliverance from them. Suffering is painful for us to endure or to see those we love endure. While our instinct is to flee trials, remember that even in the midst of suffering, God's will is being done. 
So look, I've told you this before. God created you for this moment in history. God put you on this earth right now for a reason, for a great purpose, in fact, which means there is something for you to do right now. In fact, it can't wait. If it could, he would have put you here some other time, but he didn't. He put you here now for a great purpose and everything that he brings to bear in your life, including your suffering, is meant to further that purpose in your life. And so we'd best get on with whatever that purpose is because in light of eternity, his will being done on this earth is the only thing we'll ever do that will last. And yet you understand we cannot do what he's called us to do in this life without suffering at points along the way. Hear me, because I know this is not what you want to hear. This is not what I want to hear. But it's the truth. You cannot accomplish God's will for your life on this earth without suffering. You cannot accomplish God's will for your life on this earth without suffering. We're gonna see that in our story today as we, we begin to work our way through the book of Ruth. It's about, probably be about four sermons and with time off scattered over the next few weeks, we'll finish this up around the first of September probably. And then as I told you last week, we're gonna move into the book of Revelation. But for now, we're gonna work through this story because of how profoundly important it is, I think, for us to hear. We're gonna see how suffering as unpleasant as hopeless, as unending as it can seem to be at times in our lives, we're gonna see how necessary it actually is to accomplishing God's purpose in your life. And I'm telling you, once you begin to recognize God's purpose in your suffering, you will view suffering in a whole new way, a a paradigm-shattering way, a way that will actually dramatically change you forever. So let's turn there now to the book of Ruth, chapter one. We'll begin by reading the first five verses. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about 10 years and both Malon and Kilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So the story is set in the time when the judges ruled according to verse one, which was between 1200 and about 1020 BC or during the time between Joshua's death and Judges one and the coronation of Saul as the nation's first king in 1 Samuel 10 which was a notably dreadful time in Israel's history. It was actually fraught with violent and bloody invasions, tribal civil war, unbridled lawlessness, and apostate religion. In in short, uh, during the time of Ruth, Israel was in utter chaos, both socially and religiously, and as a result, the nation was under a severe famine as the rains that were so critical to the growing season hadn't fallen on the land probably had been several years at this point. Again, as a result of the rampant rebellion against God and his word by his people, which they were put on notice for, just in case it feels unfair, they were put on notice in the covenantal curses in both Leviticus 26, 14 through 20, and also Deuteronomy 28, 15 through 24, which both offer very clear 
warnings to God's people that if they insist on going after other gods and rebelling against Yahweh, the Lord would not only send enemies of Israel to destroy their crops and occupy their land as we see throughout the book of Judges, but also that he would cut off the much needed rains and therefore bring great famine on the land. It's exactly what's happening at this point in history in this story. And so as the story opens, the only thing to be found in abundance in Israel is suffering. And under those dreadful circumstances, one Israelite man and his family decide to travel across the Jordan, across the river, to go and live for a time, presumably until the famine in Israel subsides in the country of Moab, which is literally translated from the ancient Hebrew as the fields of Moab, which was the mountainous region uh, east of the Dead Sea. It was a fertile plateau about 25 miles wide along the sea's eastern shore, several thousand feet above the sea. And although Moab was historically an enemy of Israel, uh, desperate times call for desperate measures, right? So Elimelech and his family are starving and Moab was a land of abundance. In fact, from the archeological ex- uh, excavations of Dibon, the ancient uh, capital of Mo- the Moabite King Mesha, evidence was found of a highly organized uh, agricultural organization, production organization, including massive quantities of stored wheat they found that had been carbonized over thousands of years. One of the researchers from the mid-20th century, William Reed, said that it is of interest that during excavations, families journeyed from Bethlehem to Moab for the purpose of working in the wheat and barley harvest in the still fertile plain adjacent to the Moabite capital, just as we see here in our story. Right? And again, that was the mid-20th century. In fact, uh, wheat is still cultivated in that area by Bedouin shepherds today. The point is, this was clearly the hand of God at work as the land of all of Israel is under a great famine, while at the same time across the river, right, Moab is a land of plenty. And so here's where the story gets really interesting because after they get to Moab, again, a land not historically friendly to the Hebrews, Naomi's husband dies. Well, at least she has her two sons to protect and care for her, right? As verse four says, these, meaning these two sons, took Moabite wives. And interestingly, when it says they took their wives, that phrase, when you translate it from the Hebrew, literally means they lifted up or carried away these women. And other places in scripture, such as in Judges, uh, which was again the same time period as Ruth, when that same phrase is used to refer to marriage, it's referring always to marriage by abduction just as in Judges 21-23 where the Benjaminites forcibly seized the dancers at Shiloh and took them as wives. And so the plot thickens as 10 years later these two brothers die, leaving nothing more than a broken down remnant of what has been up to this point a highly dysfunctional family. First of all, the father, Elimelech, leads his family into pagan enemy territory. Okay, the Moabites are the result of uh, Lot's incestuous relationship with his daughter in Genesis 1930 through 38, and they've been nothing but trouble for the Israelites ever since. They resisted Israelite passage through their territory when they came out of Egypt in Numbers 22 through 24. Their women seduced the Israelites who were punished because of it in Numbers 25, one through nine. And so ultimately, Israel excluded Moab from the assembly of the Lord in Deuteronomy 23, three through six. And then of course, the most recent oppression of the Israelites by Eglon, the king of Moab in Judges 3, 15 through 30. All right, so I mean, Elimelech, could have and should have led his family in just about any other direction than Moab. 
but he chose Moab anyway, and then he dies, and as referenced in Amos 7.17, to be buried in an unclean foreign land was considered the ultimate punishment for rebellion against God. And then Naomi's two sons in direct rebellion against the Mosaic law in Deuteronomy 7.3 through 4 forcibly take pagan wives in a pagan land, which Naomi did nothing to stop, the result of which is 10 years of marriage and 10 years of barrenness for both of these women, which was also described as God's judgment for being disobedient to his law in Deuteronomy 28:18, And then the sons both die, buried in a foreign land, a pagan land like their father, leaving their Hebrew mother and two Moabite wives, husbandless, childless, without any form of protection or provision or honor or hope. Okay, this entire family is a dumpster fire. It's a complete train wreck. Just about every decision they've made has been the wrong one. In fact, the only members of this family who haven't consistently made bad choices are the sisters, Ruth and Orpah. And even that's about to change, as we'll see in a moment, as Orpah abandons the family, choosing to go back to her pagan roots instead of following Naomi, who's about to make the first really good decision of her life. Uh, okay, their suffering at this point has gone from bad to worse. In fact, Ruth is the poster child for suffering at this point in the story. Everything she's been through, and now any future she could ever hope for, seems utterly out of reach. And look, we could spend all day talking about the reasons why this family, or, or any of us for that matter, experience suffering. Right? Sometimes it's because of our own sin in our lives. Sometimes it's because of other people's sin in our lives that affects us. And yet sometimes we suffer simply because we live in a fallen world. Okay, the truth is, there are many reasons why we suffer. That's not really what this story is about. That's another discussion for another day. Okay, this isn't about why we suffer. It's about what God's purpose is in our suffering, no matter what caused it. Why? Because we all suffer at times for all different kinds of reasons. But listen, regardless of the reason, your suffering is meant to further God's plan for your life every single time. Your suffering is meant to further God's plan for your life. Listen, suffering always serves a purpose. And a big part of that purpose is to further his plan for your life. But this is where we get it, uh, this is where we get it all wrong. We think our suffering is somehow keeping us from doing what God has called us to do when actually our suffering enables us to do what God has called us to do. You understand, your suffering is meant to further God's plan for your life, not stop it. Listen, once you begin to recognize that God is using your suffering to move you further into his plan for your life, you'll not only learn to work through it, but as crazy as it sounds, you'll actually begin to appreciate it for what it is and what it's working out in your life. That doesn't mean you'll enjoy it, but you'll thank God for it and you'll rejoice in it as hard as it may be because of what it is accomplishing in you and through you. This is precisely why James, the brother of Jesus, was able to say, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Like, what are you talking about, James? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, when you suffer. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James 1, 2 through 4. 
Can you see the process? James says that suffering produces steadfastness in us, and when steadfastness has had its full effect in our lives, we are made complete, lacking in nothing. What we need is provided for us by way of our suffering. That's why the Apostle Paul said we rejoice in our sufferings. These guys are crazy. We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us, Romans 5, 3 through 5. Can you see the process that suffering initiates in your life? Paul says that it produces endurance. And by the way, the word endurance in the ancient Greek, it's hupomene. It's the exact Greek uh, same word that James uses when he says that trials and the testing of your faith produce steadfastness. The exact same word. So James and Paul are saying the same thing. Suffering initiates a necessary process in our lives. A process that if we're willing to work through it instead of running from it, that process will prepare us for the next chapter of God's plan in our lives by producing the endurance and character and hope that you're going to need to accomplish that next chapter of God's plan for your life. But it only comes through suffering. There is no other way. Okay, look, as difficult as suffering can be, it is a necessary and highly valuable component of the Christian life. In the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, we have to learn that personal suffering is a more effective key, a more rewarding principle for exploring the world in thought and action than personal good fortune. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, I'm certain that I never did grow in grace one half so much anywhere as I have upon the bed of pain. All right, we all suffer, we know that, at times in our lives. That much we cannot control. But how we respond to that suffering, well, that's up to us. You can let it stop you dead in your tracks, or you can work through it, allowing it to take its full effect, producing in you everything that you need to carry out the next chapter of his plan for your life, because the last thing suffering is meant to do is to stop you from carrying out God's plan in your life. And he put you here for a purpose. And it can't wait. The apostle Peter said, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. First Peter 4.19, in other words, carry out God's plan for your life while you are suffering. It actually is the only way you're going to be able to carry out his plan for your life because of what he produces in you through your suffering. Even in hard times, we're called to carry out God's will, his plan. And listen, all you have to do is read a little history and you'll quickly see that those who have accomplished the most for the cause of Christ in this world are those who have suffered the most at the hands of this world. You hear me? Just read what makes a great story great? A true story about someone who has done something astounding, something profound, something world-changing. It's always because of the odds, the circumstances, the suffering they overcame, or what they produced in the midst of it. Those who have accomplished the most for the cause of Christ in this world are always those who have suffered the most at the hands of this world. 
That's why Bonhoeffer said we must learn to regard people less in light of what they do or omit to do and more in the light of what they suffer. Because suffering is what produces in us exactly what we need to do what he's called us to do. It's also why we're called to sacrifice everything when we follow Jesus. Look, not because we earn our way into his plan for our lives by sacrifice, but because the suffering of sacrifice enables us to carry out his plan for our lives. All right, after naming everything that Paul had accomplished in his storied career as a Pharisee, a leader and enforcer of the law, his pedigree as a religious Jew, he said, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, why? In order that I may gain Christ. Philippians 3a, Paul had to suffer to become the man God created him to be, to do the things God created him to do. Suffering in scripture, although difficult for the Christian, suffering was always assigned a high value, always. That's why the apostle Peter said, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. First Peter 4, 12 and 13. Okay, there, there are better days ahead of you than those behind you, but to get there, there's suffering at points along the way. You can't avoid it if you want to become the man or woman God created you to be. There's no way around it, as difficult as it may be. Suffering is a highly valuable and necessary component of the Christian life because it enables us to carry out his plan for our lives, which means we should not only expect it, but we should even rejoice in it for what it produces in us. Martin Luther once said, they gave our master a crown of thorns. Why do we hope for a crown of roses? Let's keep reading, verses six through 18. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband." Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept and they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back my daughters, go your way for I'm too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me, uh, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. She said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. So in the face of great calamity 
In what was legitimately a life or death situation, Naomi presumably does what she thinks is best by telling her daughters-in-law to go back home to their people, their lands, and their gods, while she returns to Judah as she has heard that the famine has ended for the Israelites, which is, uh, by the way, among other things, an indicator of Naomi's lack of relationship with the one true God because she's assigning more confidence in the pagan people and the pagan gods of Moab to care for these two young women than she is her own God and her own people. Once again, it it shines a spotlight on not only her husband's and son's lack of relationship with Yahweh, but her own lack of relationship with him as well. And given Orpah and even Ruth's response to Naomi's plea, it's clear that in their 10 years with this family, they haven't learned the first thing about the God of the Hebrews either, right? There doesn't seem to be any sense at all that just maybe God has a purpose in their suffering that is ultimately intended for their good, which again, Naomi seems to have zero awareness. As she says, it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. She has no awareness in her suffering at all as as many of us don't either, that your suffering is meant to draw you closer to God and to his people, not further away. And yet one of the first things that many of us do when we experience suffering is we act just like Naomi. We may not say it as openly as she did, but we act like God is against us and we alienate ourselves from his people, from his church. Naomi was convinced that God had turned against her and her response was to push the only family that she had left away from her. And we so often do the very same thing when we suffer. We act like we don't understand why God doesn't care about us anymore, like he somehow abandoned us and we become bitter just as she did and eventually distance ourselves from the church, from God's people. Or or we respond as Orpah did. We run back to the world for answers and for comfort and we leave God's people behind. But not Ruth. Because something was shifting inside of Ruth and we'll see in the next few weeks to come that it was God changing her through the process of suffering to the point that it didn't matter how much Naomi protested or how much it must have hurt watching or believe or how much the Israelites might reject her for being a Moabite. Ruth was determined to go to Israel with Naomi. Uh, Bible scholar Ian Dugwood said Ruth was a nobody, an outsider, a Moabite of all things. There was nothing kosher about Ruth. She knew she would be about as welcome in Bethlehem as a ham sandwich at a bar mitzvah. Conventional wisdom shouted for Ruth to follow the way of Orpah, the most likely way of worldly security and significance. But Ruth was not Orpah, and there was nothing conventional about her. You see, unlike Orpah, Ruth knew what was happening to her was somehow bigger than just her. And although she didn't fully understand it yet, God was drawing her to himself and to his people. How was he doing that? Through her suffering. It's exactly what he does with us today. And listen, we get to choose, just like these two young women did. We can choose to be like Orpah, put our trust in this world and walk away from God and his people when we suffer. Or we can choose to be like Ruth and cling to God and cling to his people when we suffer. Make no mistake about it, what you choose will determine your future. Think about it. How many people remember Orpah? Who talks about the story of Orpah? No one, because she's been forgotten. 
Right? How many women do you know named Orpah? I haven't met one yet. But Ruth, everyone knows who Ruth is. And by the way, her name happens to be one of the most popular female names of all time because of her. I looked it up just for good measure. So how in the world did this pagan girl with no husband, no children, no future end up having such a profound impact on the world? Her background was the same as Orpah. Her pedigree was the same as Orpah. In fact, there's credible evidence that these two may have been sisters. Ruth's opportunities were the same as Orpah's. Her suffering was the same as Orpah's, and her offer from Naomi was the same as Orpah's. You understand the only difference between them is the fact that while Orpah used her suffering as an excuse to run away from God and his people, Ruth used her suffering as motivation to run toward God and his people. And the difference in the outcome couldn't be more dramatic, as we'll see as the story unfolds in the weeks to come, okay? The last thing you need to do in your suffering, the last thing you need to do is put more distance between you and God and his people. Because I'm telling you, he's trying to close the gap between you and him and his people. And one of the chief ways he does that is through suffering. C.S. Lewis once said, everyone has noticed how hard it is to turn our thoughts to God when everything is going well with us. While what we call our own life remains agreeable, we will not surrender it to him. What then can God do in our interest but make our own life less agreeable to us and take away the plausible sources of false happiness? You understand there's great purpose in every single moment of your suffering. Don't waste it. Because it is a God-given purpose meant to draw you closer to him and to his people, which means when life gets hard, when your circumstances seem to turn against you, when nothing seems to be going the way it should, when there's conflict and strife in your family, in your relationships, listen, when your body's hurting and your heart is broken and your mind and emotions are afflicted, whatever it is, when you're suffering, don't isolate yourself. Don't distance yourself from the very thing he's allowing you to suffer for a deeper relationship with him and with his people, his church. It's also how you work through your suffering. Never alone, never. But in his presence with his people. Look, every time there was suffering in Paul's life or Peter's life or one of the other disciples in scripture, the church gathered together, they rallied together and prayed and provided resources to the one who was suffering. They cared for Paul while he was in prison. Others went and actually stayed there with him. No one was left alone in their suffering. When Peter was in prison, they gathered together and bombarded heaven with prayer on Peter's behalf. When Jerusalem was under famine, great suffering, the other local churches gathered together and pulled their resources to comfort and aid the church at Jerusalem. They didn't abandon each other or pull back when one of them was suffering. And yet, boy, in this hyper-individualistic culture that we live in, where we pride ourselves on being independent and self-made, We want everything to be private. We don't want other people to see us at our lowest. We don't want people to know that we're weak, confused, hurting, lacking in any way. So what do we do when we suffer? Most of us, we pull back. We draw ourselves away from the church emotionally and sometimes even physically. We draw ourselves away from God's people so we can try and process our suffering in private. 
And I'm telling you, that's not God's way. No, his way is to allow us to work through our suffering together. Why? To draw us closer to him and to one another. Let's finish the story for today. Verse 19 to the end of the chapter. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. So Naomi returns to her hometown with Ruth in tow. And just to be clear, this is not what Naomi wanted. After Ruth's impassioned plea to go with Naomi, verse 18 says, and when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. If you translate that literally from the Hebrew into English, it says when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped talking to her. Okay, there's no, thank you, Ruth, I'm so relieved. There's no, I'm glad you're here with me, Ruth. No, nothing of the sort. She just stopped talking to Ruth altogether. Okay, make no mistake about it. This was not a joyous moment for Naomi. She wasn't happy to have Ruth with her, who Naomi sees as a foreign girl, widowed, barren, an enemy of her people, and now without any source of her own provision, just one more mouth to feed. Ian Duguid says, having listened to one of the most emotionally moving speeches in the whole Bible, in which Ruth pledged herself completely to Naomi, she could make no response other than a hard silence. In her state of bitterness, she had nothing to say to this unwanted outpouring. And of course, Naomi's state of mind is confirmed the moment they enter the town as the women who rushed out to see her greet her. Notice they don't inquire at all about the Moabite girl with her. They don't even, they don't even acknowledge her existence. Right? They simply call on Naomi, to which Naomi responds, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Ruth is standing right next to her. How do you think that made her feel? Pretty special, right? Gee, what a thing to say. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? And just in case you have any questions left about Naomi's current state of mind, the name Mara, that she's insisting everyone call her now, literally means bitter. Okay, at this point, Ruth is the poster child for suffering. One moment living in her homeland, a land of plenty. The next, she's abducted by a foreigner, forced into marriage. For a decade, she lives in this dysfunctional family. She's barren, seemingly unable to have children, which was one of the worst calamities that could befall a woman in antiquity. Then her husband dies, along with the rest of the men in the family. Her sister abandons her. She pours out all her love and devotion and commitment to her mother-in-law, who doesn't even want her there. And now she's living in a foreign land where the residents not only don't want her around, but they don't even recognize recognize her existence at all. If anyone has a right to be bitter in this story, it's Ruth. 
Yet she seems to understand that her life somehow isn't just about her and in the weeks to come, we'll see her incredible character and integrity and humble spirit shine like a beacon of light to everyone around her. Ruth is an unbelievable blessing to everyone she meets. But listen, she's not an unbelievable blessing to everyone she meets because her life is good. Because she has a lot to offer materially she has lots of resources or wealth or things are well off or she's just doing great no are you kidding me up to this point Ruth's life has been one major disaster after another and yet every single person she encounters becomes a better person because of her more specifically because she's allowing God to work in her listen through her suffering there's so much purpose in Ruth's suffering, what must have seemed to her at the time to be so random and unjust and unfortunate, everything she's been through, and yet God is using that suffering as Ruth faithfully and patiently works through it for a purpose that would literally end up changing the world. You see, in the closing chapter of this book of Ruth, there's a genealogy that shows us the line of David coming from Ruth, which of course is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. This poor, abducted, abused, unwanted, unqualified for anything good, pagan girl without a future ends up living the most extraordinary life that ultimately leads us to Jesus Christ. Do you understand? That was the ultimate purpose for all of Ruth's suffering and it is the ultimate purpose for all of your suffering as well. Your suffering is meant to point others to Christ. Except that's not what most of us do with our suffering because that goes against our basic human nature, which of course is self-preservation, to serve and protect and comfort ourselves first. And so instead of using our suffering to point others to Christ, we use our suffering to point others to ourselves. Look at what's happening to me. If only I had this or that, my life would be better. If I didn't have this problem, my life would improve. If I didn't have to deal with this issue, I could serve God better. If this person wasn't mistreating me, I could really move forward with my life. It's our tendency when we experience hardship or suffering in this life is to turn inward, to focus on ourselves, which points others right back to us instead of using that suffering to point them to Christ. And so I'm just telling you, if you're struggling with something significant in your life today, ask yourself, when people talk to me about that struggle, that hardship, that suffering that comes with it, do I take those opportunities to focus on, to tell others about what God has been teaching me through it, right? Or the ways it's enabling me to draw closer to him and to his people, or how as I continue to decrease, he is increasing in my life? Does your suffering point other people to Jesus, or does it point them to you? Because I'll just tell you, what your life says about Jesus when you're suffering is infinitely more convicting to others than what your life says about Jesus when everything is easy. That's a fact. That's why these stories in the Bible are so convicting and convincing. It's because of what these people did for Christ in the midst of unimaginable suffering that gets our attention, that convinces us it has to be true because anybody can say they believe in something when times are good. It's when times are hard. That's when your metal is tested, your faith is put on display, and your testimony is most powerful to the world. 
Pastor and author Brian Cosby writes, under the rod of affliction, we're given unique opportunity to bear witness to the gospel's power in our lives, which effectively calls others to repent and believe. The believer's own endurance under trial serves as a shining public witness to the truth of God's word. Okay, the fact is, nowhere in our lives is our personal testimony to the work of Christ more effective in pointing people to Jesus than in the midst of our deepest suffering. Nowhere is our personal testimony to the work of Christ more effective in pointing people to Jesus than in the midst of our deepest suffering, which is why we should never waste the opportunity to point others to him when they ask about our suffering, what you're going through, which, which means resisting the natural inclination that we all have to point others back to ourselves when we suffer, okay? Obviously, no one wants to suffer. We all know that. I think most people also know that suffering is at times an inevitable part of living. I think we all know that we cannot avoid all suffering in our lives. What is not as commonly understood, however, is the fact that you also cannot accomplish God's will for your life on this earth without suffering. You cannot. Because it is, in fact, through suffering that God prepares and enables us to accomplish his plan for our lives as we grow closer to him and closer to his people, all the while pointing this world to Jesus Christ. Truth is, there's, there's so much God-given purpose in your suffering. And although you may never enjoy it, you can rejoice in it, knowing that even in your times of suffering, in fact, especially in your times of suffering, first of all, God is with you. He's not trying to stop you from doing his will when you suffer, quite the contrary. He's trying to prepare you and enable you for the next chapter of your life through that suffering as he draws you ever closer to him and to each other so that when this world encounters you in your good times, yeah, but especially in your most difficult times, all that they will see is Jesus. Let's pray.